Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. You know, we've been in a series here on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already gone through the Beatitudes, God's proclamations from heaven to earth. We've spoken about a light city. And today, I want to dive in again about midway through in chapter 6 when Jesus continues to speak these truths over his people. We have quite a bit of scripture to read today, so lock in. We're going to start in Matthew 6, verse 25. The Bible says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall I eat? Or what shall, I, what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Two more verses, Numbers chapter 20, verse 10 and 11. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this place, God. We pray that uh, the words that are spoken would speak to our hearts, would speak to our minds. Prepare us to receive your truth. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Have you ever had or talked about your game-changing moment. Maybe you don't call it a game-changing moment. Maybe you just say, uh, when this happens. Sometimes we say, like, when I get this job, I'll be all set. When I meet this person, it'll be so good. When I get the promotion, I'll be ready to go. You know, when I'm married, life will be perfect. And all the married people look at you like, you have no idea what you're saying. You know, when I win a million dollars, when I retire. We have all these when-I moments, and I don't know what your when-I moment is, but we each have one. The proverbial moment where dusk turns to dawn, where the light breaks through, all of a sudden you're sitting there saying, I made it, I did it. And you know what, there's nothing wrong with wanting that moment. There's nothing wrong with desiring to reach that point. In fact, I would encourage you to strive for that. But can I propose, that you can get the job, you can meet the right person, you can make the million dollars, but you can lose it all in a heartbeat if you can't answer this important question, 
What do I do when I feel? I want to talk to you today from this perspective. When I feel, and if I were to give it a subtitle, I'd say, living above your emotions. When I feel might be the most important three words you could say to yourself. But oddly enough, we don't talk about it enough. We don't discuss the emotions of life. We don't discuss the feelings we have to deal with and kind of fight our way through. We don't discuss it a lot at all. You know, when I was, when I was younger, I used to listen to this song. Now, this is BC. This is before Christ, so you don't judge me. But uh, it went something like this. I've got some issues that nobody can see. And all of these emotions are pouring out of me. I bring them to the light for you. It's only right. This is the soundtrack of my life. I never realized how significant these few words were until I grew up and I began to watch people live life based on the soundtrack of their emotions. If it says I'm up, I'm up. I'm down, I'm down. Indifferent, that's just what you're going to get. And they live life on this roller coaster of emotions. And the truth is, a lot of people don't even realize it. They've never been taught to think about what you're thinking about. When you're a kid, you're often told, don't punch, don't pinch, don't kick, don't claw. Essentially, you're told, learn to control your body. But nobody ever tells you, you should learn to control your emotions. And the issue is today, we live in a society that celebrates going with how you feel. Just follow your heart. People say things like, if it feels right to you, it's right. Can I just say, that's foolishness. In fact, the Bible tells us this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I would highly advise against simply going through emotions. And I'm not trying to say emotions are bad, hear me. Emotions are a gift from God. It gives us the ability to love, the ability to care. We can have empathy and sympathy, compassion. In fact, an entire part organization was birthed out of compassion through this church. We, our lives came to be because we saw a problem, and the emotion, the compassion said we should do something about it. And it birthed an entire operation that says, we see you're hurt, we're here to help. Jesus, throughout his ministry, showed compassion. Often you read, he had compassion, and he responds to them. You watch him as he stands uh, in front of Lazarus' grave, and he cries. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, is probably so profound because it says he had emotions like us. But Jesus had emotions. Emotions didn't have him. So what am I trying to say? Emotion in themselves are not bad. Emotions unmanaged and uncontrolled can be tragic. You have to realize the enemy will use your emotions to fight against you. Fight against your marriage, fight against your friendships, fight against your career, fight against your God-given purpose. Whatever you can use it to turn against, he'll use your emotions to fight against you. There are trails of wrecked friendships, trails of broken relationships, trails of train wreck marriages, all because of someone's unwillingness or inability to control the enemy in me. So what do you do when you're faced with your genuine emotions, but they're in conflict with your genuine faith? 
I think that's where a lot of believers find themselves. Sitting sometimes with anger that might fester, turn to rage. Sitting sometimes with concern that we allow to ruminate over and over again until finally it moves into worry. Sitting under stress until it's overwhelming, feeling like fear, feeling like concern. All come rushing in. We find ourselves in this place with all these emotions that are colliding in our minds, but usually they don't come one at a time. If it was just anger, I could deal with it. I could bring it to God, pray it out, it would be okay. But it's anger and the feeling of insignificance. If it was just the argument with my friend, I could deal with it. But it's the argument with my friend and the infighting with my family that begins to layer on me. If it was just the argument with the spouse, that'd be cool, but it's the spouse and the kids aren't listening. And by the way, I'm having trouble with my boss and all these things begin to mount and build on you and you find yourself in this space where your feelings are juxtaposed to your faith. And the pressure on the outside is mounting and the pressure on the inside is building and in the middle is your mind. And you find yourself in this space and here's what, here's, what, here's what take place. You begin to focus on things you cannot fix. And they get larger, and they get larger, and they seem more daunting, and it seems harder. And all of a sudden, your mind goes to this place where you're like, you know, the only focus, the only thing that matters are the things that are out of my control. And first, from a science perspective, here's what takes place. Uh, there's a little thing in your brain called the amygdala. It controls your fight or flight response. And when you're under all this stress, and you're under all this worry, and when you've got yourself bottled up, it determines we're in trouble, danger, let me react. And it starts to release all these stress hormones within your body to prepare you for the pending danger. So now you're all bent up, you're all tight, you're all out of shape, you've moved from concern to genuine anxiety, but hold on, we never call it anxiety. We say things like, I'm just bearing my cross. I'm just living for the Lord. But the Lord never intended for you to live in this uptight state. And if you stay in this state of anxiety, it eventually slides to this point of frustration because you can't fix these things you're obsessed about. And frustration, when it lasts long enough, leads to a sense of defeat. And if defeat takes a seat on your heart, it can slide into depression, sometimes a deep depression. I can't tell you the number of people that I've personally spoken to that say, you know, I'd, I'd never do it. I want you to know I'd never do it, but I've thought about it. I'd, I'd never act on it, but it did cross my mind. Trust me, I, I, I wouldn't be in that situation. I wouldn't move that direction, but I want to be honest and say, it's happened where I, I, I asked the question, would it be better if I weren't here? And I give them all the same honest response. I remember when I asked the same question. I remember when I allowed the uncertainty of the future and what was to come to almost cause me to succumb to the enemy's lie that you're better off not being here. And if you're in that place, I need you to hear me. Your life is of great value. You're not an accident. 
God said he knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. He says, I know the end from the beginning. In other words, before he placed you, he had a purpose for you. He called you to do something. You're the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. You have great value. And if you feel as though the enemy has a giant bullseye on your back, it's because you have a great future ahead of you. And there's light at the end of the tunnel. And you'll get out of this. And soon enough, you'll come along someone else that says, I'm going through. And you'll say, you know what? I can show you the way out. And that's what makes community so important. That's why crews are so necessary. Because you get into a crew and you meet other people who are going through what you've been through. Or have been through what you're going through. And they can now walk you out of it. And I understand that I'm speaking to a large amount of people. And some of you will say, I've never actually been that far. I've never gone to the point where I felt like I was in deep depression, but I am, or I have been, at this point of anxiety where frustration starts peaking, and I'm toiling and trying to fix it, but things aren't lining up, and the pressure is mounting, and the more I try to figure out, the more frustrated I become, and I reach this point where dealing with people and their problems all comes to a head. Have you ever just wanted to relieve the frustration in your own life? Have you ever felt like it was too much and, and you just want to pull the plug on the pressure? Have you ever felt like one more phone call, one more text message, if one more person says something to me that I don't like, and sometimes that means just saying hello, if one more time, I'm going to lose it. If, and you end up in this place where you act out of emotion and you do something you lay down regret. Or in the heat of the moment, you say something, and later on you're thinking, you know what, I, I really wish I could take that back. Or in a fit of rage, you cut someone out of your life, someone out of your life, and then you look back and say, you know, I, I wish they were still here. All of this, because the problems of this world have pressed you into this place, and that's where Moses finds himself when he struck the rock. You know, Moses, a leader amongst leaders, Moses, who when God called him and said, hey, we'll get other people to serve with you, he said to Moses, I'll take the spirit on you, Moses. There's so much anointing on you, and I'll put it on 70 other people. Moses chosen to lead God's people. Moses, a man who spoke of God face to face. The same Moses had been leading the children of Israel for almost 40 years, dealing with their bickering, their complaining, over and over again. Now, you might have that one friend that complains all the time, and you know how that is. Now, imagine having a million people complaining all the time, and just like you and me, Moses reached a point of frustration because these are problems he cannot fix. And he's with the Israelites in the desert zen, and there is no water. And again, they come and oppose him and Aaron. They start complaining, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us to this place? They're actually complaining about being freed from slavery. Why did you bring us out of slavery into this place where now there's no water? There are no pomegranates. It's interesting that in the moment where they lack something, they forgot how, God, how good God has been to them. In the moment when they lack this one thing, they forget all that God has brought them through. But how often is that us? The moment a problem comes, forget that God fixed the last thing last time. The moment an issue arises, we slip into this place where we have amnesia of the goodness of God. So Moses, in this moment, he's getting frustrated about it. He leaves the people. He goes to the tent of meeting. Him and Aaron, they fall on their faces before God. 
And God tells him this. He says, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses gets these instructions. Speak to the rock. Water's going to come out of the rock. It'll give the community water. And Moses goes back and he gathers the people that God told him to. He gets ready to speak to them. He says this to them. Moses lines up and says, listen, you rebels. Can you, can you hear it? Moses is still upset. He's been with God. God's given him instructions. But Moses is mad. These people have gotten under his skin. His emotions have been put to the peak. He is really upset. Have you ever been there? Have you ever gone to God? He's given you instructions, and then you get up and you say, well, let me do it the way I want to do it anyway. Have you ever been there where God is clearly said, hey, maybe you should text that person and make it right, and you text, P.S., I still hate you. Have you ever been there? We didn't really follow God's instructions. Moses is in this place now where he's, he's arguing with the people. He says, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Now, what is this we stuff? God's going to do this. But Moses is so angry, he's starting to say, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you what I can do. He takes from being about God and makes it about himself. Look at what I'm about to do. We are going to bring water out of this rock. And he spoke to the people. And he made it about himself and not about God. But God had said, Moses, speak to the rock. Moses raises his hand and he strikes the rock twice. And water comes out abundantly. And all the people get to drink and their livestock. And in that moment, I'm sure Moses felt like, I showed them. I let them have it. And that's how it feels when you let out your frustration. I show them. I let that person know just what they needed to hear. Yeah, I know God told me make peace, but I made peace after I cussed out Jane, and now I feel better. And Moses might have felt good for a little bit, but if you go to verse 12, look at what God says to Moses. He says, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. In one moment of frustration, in one moment of release, Moses cancels his own calling. And maybe you haven't hit a rock, but how often have you lashed out? How often have you taken things into your own hand? How often have you gone to God and said, you know what, God, I know what you told me to do, but I'm so frustrated, I'm so anxiety-filled that I'm going to take care of this because I just can't trust you to do it the way I want you to. How close have you come to canceling your own calling because God can't trust you? It was in light of this story and this, the severe consequences of Moses' inability to control his emotion. It was in light of this that I realized why, in the middle of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Christian Constitution, Jesus would stop and declare over people, do not be anxious. It seemed like it might not fit in this moment. I mean, this is the greatest sermon ever. You could put something else there, but maybe Jesus was on something, and in the middle of the sermon, he says, by the way, let me tell you, do not 
be anxious. It's almost as though he knew this is the thing that could trip us up. He knew we'd try to figure it out. He knew we'd try to make it happen on our own. He knew that we would try to go about being gods in our own lives. And once we realized it wasn't possible and there's just things that are out of our control, it's going to make us a little uncomfortable. It's going to make us a little unsettled. So Jesus lets us know right away, don't do it. Don't allow life to move you from me into this place of anxiety. Don't do it. It's interesting that Jesus stands on the mountain Galilee and makes this statement to people who are oppressed and facing all kinds of danger. And Paul, the apostle, years later would sit in a Roman prison and pen a letter to the church of Philippi and say the exact same thing. In the exact same sentiment, he'd say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Bible gives us this perfect imagery of God himself saying, don't worry. And then Paul, a man like you and me, in prison saying, I second that despite your situation. Do not be anxious. Not about your life. And a lot of times it's a fear of our past catching up to us. Will they still like me if they know who I used to be? Or is this weight and uncertainty of who we're going to be. But can I tell you this? If God gave you life, won't God care for the life he gave you? Don't you realize how much you matter to God? Not the person next to you. You. Not the person that every time you get in the car, they have the Christian radio station on, always rocking Caleb. Not that person, but you. The person who got it wrong. The person who messed up. The person who keeps dropping the ball. God wants you. He died for you. And we always get concerned about things that are easy to God. Jesus says to us, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the, your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's trying to say, are there not greater things to focus on? Jesus is trying to get you to raise your gaze. Are there not heavenly things to seek after? If you're always down the base things, and you're always trying to figure out the, the, these minimal, small things, you'll never look up to the greater things, the things that you're called to go and do. Maybe that's why the, the, the writer of Proverbs says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, because it takes trust to look up. It takes trust to take your eyes off of, if I get this right and I get this right, then this will happen. If I don't get this right, this will go wrong. Well, let me move this over here. It takes trust to stop and say, I'm going to step out of how I feel and listen to what God has to say. It takes trust to lean into him. And Jesus gives this example. He says, uh, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. He says, look at all, all around you at nature. All of creation declares God's glory. Look at the beauty God has created around you. And think if you put this much detail into how the birds are cared for, how the trees would grow, how the grass would reproduce. If he gave this much attention to these things, which are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he give to you? You're the one he called. You're the one he purposed. You're the one he loves. He goes on to say this, anxiety will not add a day to your life. In fact, anxiety 
will take away days from your life. You'll miss out on moments you should be a part of. You'll miss connections you should have made. It'll rob you of peace you deserve. It will silently and secretly snuff the life out of you, and you won't know what's happening. We got heart attacks, heart disease, panic that leaves you paralyzed. All these things come from anxiety. So Jesus asks the question, so why worry? Why even bother with the worry? If all these things and all these situations arise from worrying, why do you do it? And then he answers his own question in verse 30 and says this, oh, you of little faith. It's not that you don't have faith, but you have little faith in your big God. You're focusing so much attention on your small problem, you're ignoring the big God that has a solution for you. And Jesus looks at this crowd, they're listening to him speak this over them, and he says this, hey, when you do this, you're like the pagans. You're acting like those who don't have a God, like those, like those who don't have a refuge, like those who don't have a savior, but you do. You have a God, and your heavenly Father knows all that you need. In fact, in chapter 7, he says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. You don't have to stay in this place of fret and anxiety. So the question is, so what do we do? Many of you have lived this way your entire life, carrying years of weight and worry, trying to make it happen on your own, thinking this is the only way, looking around or lugging around all the cares life's put on you. And Jesus gives a simple answer to all your worries, a simple answer to all your cares and all your hurts. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's it? That's the big idea? Seek God? That's going to answer all my problems, solve the situation, and stop me from being in this space where I'm just searching, where I'm filled with emotion, where I feel like I'm going to explode. That's it? Just, just seek God? If that's the big idea, then how do I do it? What does seeking God look like? First of all, I'd say this. Church shouldn't be optional. Gathering with other, other believers and worshiping God shouldn't be optional. Coming together in the community shouldn't be optional. In fact, it's essential. You know, as the weather gets nicer, your kids have sports. You want to go to the beach. And I love sports. I don't so much love the beach, but I love sports. And I love all these things, but, but I wonder if, if, if you take the kid out of church with this one sport event, with this one beach day, later on cost them their future because they'll miss this basic lesson of putting God first. And when trouble comes, they won't know where to go. So in seeking God, make sure church is never optional. Church is always essential to you. The second thing I say is this, reading your Bible shouldn't be occasional. God's word helps you to know who God is. You'll scroll through Instagram. You read 30 articles on Facebook. And then you'll say, you know, I, I didn't have time. You didn't make time. And how do you know how good a God is that you don't know at all? How do you seek his face when you're unsure how? And he's giving you the word. He's giving you the way to know him. And I'm saying, utilize it. 
If you're wound up tight, it'll help unwind you. If you're confused, it'll help give you clarity. If you're uncertain, it'll help you lock into certainty. The word of God will speak to you if you take time to seek it. The third thing I say is this. Praying ought not be something you do when you really need it. Praying shouldn't be something you do. Prayerful should be who you are. That means constantly I'm talking to God about it. That means constantly I'm seeking his face. I want to know what he has to say about what I'm going to today. And then I want to talk to him about, hey, what do you think about tomorrow? I want to always be in his presence seeking his face at all times. Because can you imagine if we began to seek God first? If we stopped before we picked up the phone, we got on our knees? Because God doesn't just want to be God over all. He wants to be God in your life. He wants to be God in the details. He wants to be God in the decisions. He wants to be involved with all that you are going to do. And the more you begin to seek him wholeheartedly and cast your cares upon him, without taking them back, just give them to God. The more you do that, he gets bigger, the problem gets smaller, and you, you become set free from shackles you were never meant to wear. And Jesus ends his discourse by saying this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's not that you won't have trouble, but the Bible tells us his mercies are new every day. He gives you new mercy and new strength for every day. So you don't need to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Focus on today. You have all you need to handle today. You have all you need to get through today. And know in faith that when tomorrow arrives, you will be more than ready because he's already put it in you. In fact, one of my favorite Bible verses is this. As your days show, so shall your strength be. In other words, for every day you're here, he's equipped you. He's put in you all that you need for this day. You don't have to fret. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be concerned. You don't have to be pulling your hair out and stressed out. He's equipped you for the pressure of the day with the ability to carry it through the day. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, I promise you'll be okay. You know, if I was going to sum this all up, I'd have to sum it up with Peter. The disciples are on a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. And they see Jesus come walking on the water. And the Bible tells us they all get afraid. They're panicking. They're thinking it's a ghost. And Jesus says to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter, obviously Peter, wow, Peter. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. He says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk on water toward Jesus. He's in the middle of doing this amazing miracle. In the moment, he looks away and he sees the waves. He sees the trouble. He sees the problems. And he starts to sink and screams out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and pulls up and says, oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? You know, I read this story. I see me. I see you. 
How often is it that we're, we have our eyes on Jesus, everything's going okay, but then we look at the problems in our own life, the situations happening around us, all that's going on, and we start to sink and we say, Lord, save us. And just like Peter, though we take our eyes off of him, he never took his eyes off of us. If you don't even look back to him, he's standing with hand extended saying, I'll save you. I'll bring you out of this. I'll get you through. I never meant for you to go through this on your own. I'll carry you. Despite what's going on around you, if you can look to me, the author of peace, you can have peace within you. And maybe that's my challenge for you today. Can you keep your eyes on Jesus? Despite what's happening to your left or to your right, can you keep your eyes on Jesus? And maybe you've taken your eyes off of him. Or maybe you never knew him. And you're just for the first time hearing about this Jesus that wants to come alongside of you and take the weight of the world off your shoulder. Maybe you're saying, I want that. I want to know him. I don't want to live uptight anymore. I don't want to live in this space where every day seems like it's a doomsday or something's wrong and, and, and there's another problem and, and I got I to fret to fix something else. And I, I, don't, I don't want that. And, and you know what? You shouldn't have to live like that. You weren't designed for that. And I want to invite you to get to know a God that wants to take that from you. I want to invite you to allow God to be God in your life. I want to invite you to turn from your sin and run to the Son of God, Jesus himself. Because his hands are out. And he's waiting for you. And he wants to lift you up out of your situation. He wants to lift you up out of your sin. He wants you to bring you into peace with him. The Bible says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't know Christ or you want to rededicate yourself to Christ because you've allowed life to come in and, and distract you or take you away, would you pray with me in this moment? I'm going to say a prayer, and you repeat this prayer after me, and I believe if you say it, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that you will be saved that Jesus will come into your life. He'll shift everything. What's wrong will be made right. I'm not saying you'll never have a problem, but I'm saying you'll be working with the ultimate problem solver. I'm not saying you'll never have a weight on you, but I'm saying he'll come along and give you the strength to carry it. Would you pray with me? Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, come into my life. Forgive me my sins. I turn from my wicked ways. And I look to you. Would you be the Lord? Would you be God? Would you be Savior of my life? In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, even right now in the comments, there's a link being posted. We want to give you some information. We want to equip you uh, for this journey. Because this is a journey. And before you go awakening, I want to pray a prayer over you. It's called the serenity prayer, but I want to pray it over all of us because I believe it does sum up everything we've discussed today. God grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, 
the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as we would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if we surrender to your will so that we may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you, happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.